I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Americans spend hundreds of billions of dollars each year on medications. Are we getting our money's worth? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Nowadays, most medications are made overseas. That's especially true of generic drugs. Questions have been raised about the quality of some of these inexpensive pharmaceuticals. Contaminated eye drops have been linked to cases of blindness and even deaths. Why didn't the FDA catch the problem before it caused harm? When the FDA inspects foreign facilities, it has to arrange visits in advance. Do such announcements undermine its ability to detect flaws and fraud? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, how does the FDA monitor drug quality? In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, as we move towards spring, public health officials are looking forward to the end of flu season. That hasn't happened yet, with overall infections at 4.4% nationally. However, we are getting an uptick in norovirus. That frequently occurs in the spring, causing nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Fever and headache may accompany the gastrointestinal symptoms. Affected individuals are miserable, as well as extremely infectious. Some people refer to this condition as intestinal apocalypse. Patients usually develop symptoms between 12 and 48 hours after exposure. At this time, the Northeast has the highest rates of norovirus, but it has appeared in other parts of the country as well, including the West and Southwest. Most people recover within two or three days, but dehydration due to fluids lost from vomiting and diarrhea can cause serious complications. Young children and the frail elderly are the most vulnerable. A new study published in the journal Vaccine reveals some interesting discoveries about the COVID-19 vaccines. This study, called the Global Vaccine Safety Project, involved 99 million people from eight countries, including Australia, Canada, Argentina, Denmark, Finland, France, New Zealand, and Scotland. In general, serious side effects were rare. For example, myocarditis was twice as common following vaccination as in healthy unvaccinated populations. The number of cases, though, were relatively small. Guillain-Barre, a neurological complication that causes temporary paralysis, was more common after the AstraZeneca vaccine. The researchers predicted 76 cases of Guillain-Barre in healthy unvaccinated people they actually observed 190 cases. Another serious but rare complication was acute disseminated encephalomyelitis following the Moderna vaccination. Scientists expected two cases among 10 million people vaccinated. Instead, they reported seven. The conclusion seems to be that COVID vaccines do indeed cause vascular and neurological adverse reactions, but the overall incidence is low. Lipoprotein A, also known as LP little a, is nearly ready for prime time. 
This independent cardiovascular risk factor has been mostly ignored for decades. But a brand new study published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology shows that higher levels of LP little a were associated with a greater risk of heart attack and angioplasty. The reason this risk factor was ignored for so long was that doctors did not have an intervention to prescribe to lower it. In fact, the standard drugs for lowering cardiovascular risk, statins, actually raise levels of LP little a. Now, however, drug companies are developing new medications that will address lipoprotein A. Another study, published this week in Clinical Research in Cardiology, demonstrated a causal association between LPA levels and coronary artery disease. Two new studies scheduled for publication in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease report a 100-year-old vaccination may reduce the likelihood of developing dementia. Bacillus Calmet-Guerin was introduced in 1921 as a vaccine against tuberculosis. It's also used today to treat bladder cancer as a way of stimulating the immune system to fight the malignancy. Researchers tracked such patients and discovered that those treated with BCG were less vulnerable to two devastating neurological conditions, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. The authors report that routine vaccinations against shingles or influenza also reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease, but not as much as BCG. These researchers urged their colleagues to consider vaccination with BCG as a potential preventive measure against dementia. British scientists report that drugs to treat erectile dysfunction may have some unexpected benefits. In a five-year study, men taking ED drugs such as Viagra were almost 20% less likely to develop dementia. The more frequently they use these drugs, the better the outcome. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Americans spend over $600 billion annually on pharmaceuticals. New and pricey brand-name medicines account for a big part of the bill, but 90% of the medications that are dispensed in this country are for generic drugs. And most of those are now manufactured abroad. How well does the FDA monitor the quality of those foreign-made medications? To help us answer that question, we turn to investigative journalist Anna Edney. She's a national health care reporter for Bloomberg News. A recent article she wrote carries the title, The Pentagon Wants to Root Out Shoddy Drugs. The FDA is in its way. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Anna Edney. Good to be with you. Anna, you've done a lot of in-depth reporting on pharmaceutical issues and in particular about quality. What got you interested in this particular beat? I've been covering it for a long time, um, like you said, and it was about maybe nine or ten years ago um, when then FDA Commissioner Margaret Hamburg went to India um, and it was around the same time that a lot of inspection reports from FDA inspectors were 
popping up um, with interesting findings in them, just not your usual, just like things might be unsanitary, but um, kind of deception in some of these things that were being found at pharmaceutical manufacturing plants in India, as far as trying to hide documents or trying to not look into things um, that they that the company should be looking into if there were complaints. And I just sort of kept on it. But it's been a problem that hasn't been solved and actually has felt like um, the FDA a bit is is turning away from it, even though there's still a lot of these sometimes shady things going on at the companies that make the drugs we take. Now, when you say shady things, I mean, we've read about fraud. We've read about unsanitary conditions. We've read about, well, why don't you tell us some of the problems? We've heard about a drug from a company called Rambaxi. Maybe you can be very specific. There was a, a heparin problem when you probably got started, which is a blood thinner, and it led to death. So give us some details. Sure. Um, you're right. There there was the, the heparin problem um, even a little bit earlier that had led to some deaths, a, a couple hundred in the U.S. Um, when the company, this was a company in China um, that was actually substituting a deadly ingredient for you know something that, that was supposed to be a pharmaceutical grade ingredient um, and it wasn't being detected even by some of the bigger companies that were buying this ingredient um, and then you know Ranbaxi I think has been was very well covered um, and Catherine Eban has done a wonderful book talking a lot about that um, bottle of lies and how the company wasn't doing the tests um, that they that they needed to be doing to to prove that their drugs worked and were hiding that from the Food and Drug Administration. One I've covered recently that I think kind of sums up really well some of the things that go on is Intos. Um, and Intos is in India. They were responsible for what was recently um, a shortage of chemotherapies, cisplatin and carboplatin. These are really widely used. There were a lot of cancer patients that had to delay or change their treatment. Um, and what happened was when FDA inspectors went into this company um, at the end of 2022, one of their plants in India, they essentially saw a large truck outside um, with a bunch of shredded documents and bags. And, you know, they were told you know, not to not to worry about it, but just being seasoned inspectors, they knew to, to take a look. And this truck was actually the driver told them waiting to get clearance to leave and what was in all those bags and what was what was torn up was some quality documents and quality documents are what pharmaceutical companies produce when they are testing their drugs as they manufacture them they're supposed to keep checking the quality of them and looking for you know impurities um, potential contamination but also the amount of drug um, that's in there to make sure everything's right so those documents had been shredded when they found out that FDA inspectors were coming and this truck was trying to leave this industrial zone before the inspectors could find it. One of those bags didn't make it outside in time to the truck and a, a worker at this Entos plant threw acid on this bag so that the inspectors couldn't read those documents. So those are the kind of things that are sometimes being found. It's not. It's obviously not every single company that goes 
quite to that extreme. But Intas is still making drugs for the U.S. at some of their plants. And even though this one factory was banned not that long ago from sending drugs into the U.S. after all of this was found, there's such a shortage of many, many drugs that there are a couple dozen at least that they are still sending from that very factory to patients in the U.S. So what the FDA actually inspects when it inspects a plant Largely what it's looking at is the quality control documents. Of course, it takes a look at the lines and it looks to see, you know, if, if everything is clean and if, or if it's grimy. But the quality documents are really important. So the fact that, that these quality documents were being deliberately destroyed suggests that the company knew it had something to hide. And the question that I have is, if these drugs being made in this plant did not meet quality standards, why do we say, well, we're short on these drugs, so bring them in anyway? Does it make sense to be using drugs that don't meet quality standards, especially chemotherapy drugs? I know that the FDA grapples with this and has try to weigh kind of as they do, even when approving drugs, the benefit and the risk. And certainly, if I was a patient who was in need of chemotherapy, I would be worried that I might get one of these drugs. And, you know, I think one thing that maybe is a slight reassurance, but I I still don't know, you know, that it, it really is, is that the FDA does require drugs coming from a plant like this that has what's called an import ban on it. So they're not supposed to send drugs through except those that the FDA waives because of shortage issues. They're supposed to be checked by a third party. Um, We don't get much insight into who that third party is or what the results of the testing are. But presumably, if they have made it into the U.S., they have past whatever kind of of testing that is done that is extra from what is normally normally done. But I do know a lot of um, some of my sources that I talked to have said that really that chemotherapy shortage really, you know, freaked Food and Drug Administration official officials out. They don't want to be responsible in a way for a shortage. And sometimes they get blamed when there's an inspection that doesn't go well. Um, And so there's been kind of this leaning towards letting drugs through more so than getting, you know, tough on the companies. So the FDA went into a second NTOS plant in India in May, and they found conditions um, that weren't good there either. And they they found that they had been, um, this time it wasn't that the quality documents were thrown out, it's that they were altered and they were visibly altered. You know, things crossed out and passing grades essentially put in there. And that plant, there has not been a exactly a, a punishment, I guess. Like they are still sending drugs to the U.S. Um, there hasn't been an import alert on that factory and Intos actually wanted to to kind of shut down everything to be able to fix whatever issues the FDA found. But their drug shortages staff, um, and this is what sources told me, their drug shortages staff said, we need you to keep 
producing drug, like, don't do that. So even when the company thought that it, you know, had enough issues that it should probably stop making them for the U.S. for a while, the FDA told them not to do that. And I suspect that a lot of physicians and other healthcare workers in the U.S., as well as patients and pharmacists, believe that the Food and Drug Administration tests everything. I mean, if there's a problem at a um, manufacturing plant in Thailand or China or India that the FDA would be scrupulous about testing, that's apparently not the case. Can you tell us what the FDA does and doesn't do when it comes to verifying quality? Your point is exactly right that most people assume the FDA is testing the drugs that we're taking um, to make sure that they're okay. I, I hear that so often. Um, and actually, that is not what the agency does. That is not what they want to do. And so they have sort of a, a very small spot check system where they're, if they think there's problems with a drug, you know, they might test a couple dozen or you know maybe more um, depending on the year but really they're not making sure that everything that comes off the line is, is effective and is safe there's a system in europe where there are labs under the european commission there's about 70 throughout europe that do more of this work and there are certain drugs um, like vaccines where they test every batch to make sure that everything is okay with these. And um, the FDA has has really pushed back against any type of testing other than, you know, testing by the pharmaceutical companies. So what the FDA knows about the drugs is essentially what the pharmaceutical companies tell them. Anna Edney, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Anna Edney, national healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News. One recent piece she wrote was titled, The Pentagon Wants to Root Out Shoddy Drugs, The FDA Is In Its Way. After the break, we'll talk with a former military officer about his experience with medicines for the U.S. Army. How did he start looking at the quality of the drugs being provided for the troops? What is the reality of regulatory oversight outside the U.S.? That's now where most of our medicines come from. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, backed by 20 years of scientific research and the maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, CocoPro Cocoa Extract. Cocoflavanols are among the most studied plant-based bioactives today and are clinically proven to promote cardiovascular and brain health for the long term, supporting a strong heart, and better memory. Get 15% off your order of any Cocovia product by using the discount code PPOD15. Learn more at Cocovia and remember that discount code is PPOD15. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Memory Plus is formulated with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols, a level clinically proven to improve three different types of memory and support brain function. More information at cocovia.com. The military spends a lot of effort, as well as our tax money, trying to keep troops healthy. When it comes to drugs, quality counts. Whether it's an antibiotic to cure an infection or a blood pressure medicine to reduce the risk of strokes or heart attacks. To learn more about how the military monitors drug quality, we turn to someone who knows that process like the back of his hand. Victor Suarez was a colonel in the U.S. Army before his recent retirement. He served in healthcare supply chain, acquisition, and product development roles for the Army. He now serves as a senior advisor for a multi industry coalition called Securing America's Medicines and Supply. Its aim is to strengthen the security of the medical supply chain in the U.S. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. Victor Suarez. It's a pleasure to be here with the People's Pharmacy. Thank you for the invite. Vic, you've had 27 years in a worldwide operational healthcare supply process for the U.S. Army. Can you give us a little background? Like, how did you get into this? What does that mean? Just let us understand a little bit what you've been doing for the last couple of decades. Sure. The first eight years in the Army was in rapidly deployable units, found myself in Iraq as a medical company commander, and was invited to apply for a internship with the U.S. Army Medical Material Agency based out of Fort Detrick, Maryland, just about an hour north of Washington, D.C. Came out of Iraq in late 2004 and started this internship for about six months and really learned worldwide healthcare supply chain, visited industry, visited academia, went over the world, quite frankly, over six months and really got into how does the medical supply chain work for both devices, pharmaceuticals, as well as med surge items. And I was able to stay with that agency and really get involved heavily in all the fielding of our medical sets, kits, and outfits. And that's really the start of my career, specifically working on the medical supply chain back in 2005 timeframe. Well, just out of curiosity, what were some of the things that you had to move around the world for the U.S. military? Well, the big thing is what we call sets, kits, and outfits. These are all the sets that include all the trauma supplies, what we call sick call supplies, anything to decon patients under a chemical biological warfare environment, anything to perform x-rays, diagnostics in a lab environment, to field units all over the world. And so I was in charge for about three years of the Army's medical fielding division based out of Fort Detrick, Maryland. And what we did was we worked with industry to source some of these materials, put them into listings of supplies that we needed per organization. And you could have an organization as small as a battalion aid station with 30 medics, 
all the way up to a very large field hospital with several hundreds, if not thousands of service members that would run what we call a role three hospital or combat support hospital in a combat zone. We had to devise in our, in our, our agency, certain standardized sets, kits, and outfits that would support each one of those types of organizations in combat. So I'm assuming that these sets, kits, and outfits, some of them contain uh, devices or bandages or sterile washes or what have you. Others probably contain medications. And I'm very interested in how you started to look more closely at the quality of the medications that your outfit was providing. Yes, it's true. Most of these sets, kits, and outfits, especially those that provide direct patient care in most of our sick call sets and some of our medicine sets do contain a lot of pharmaceuticals. But it wasn't until uh, several years later, uh, around the 2013 timeframe, and I was a lieutenant colonel, I was doing my first battalion level command out of Doha, Qatar, which is really the the head of um, all, it's a Ford de- depot for the entire Middle East for about 12 countries where we have service members stationed. We also at the time were supporting State Department health units uh, in the Middle East as well. And it was during that time where I ran a very large depot forward that I got to really dig into the business of the, the distribution of these pharmaceuticals and maybe some of the impacts we saw in the marketplace. And it was really kind of the the drug that we noticed the most that was causing some not so much quality issues, but a, a change in the business where the price of the drug really spiked. And that was doxycycline back in 2013. And I know you and your readers may have or can look it up, but in 2012 to 2013, we saw doxycycline go from something like three cents a tablet, which is probably way too underpriced to over $5 a tablet in just 12 months. And so that really made an big impression on me that there's something going on here. There's some type of market forces not healthy within this supply chain. And then I fast forward it to years later when I ended up becoming the commander at the colonel level of that organization called the Sixth Medical Logistics Management Center based out of Fort Detrick, which has now a global worldwide responsibility for the Defense Department for being the bridge between the industrial base and the deployed warfighter for medicines and medical supplies is when I started looking into the issue of quality as another factor or symptom of what was going on with the economics of the drug supply chain. And it was really in the 2022 timeframe when an article came out in the Journal of the American Pharmacists Association that was published in the fall that I think Joe and some other key opinion leaders had proposed a drug scorecard model for how you can rate the quality of drugs in a red, yellow, green type format, and also looking at some attributes of reg- regulatory you know, history of those drugs that combine with a FY23 National Defense Authorization Act requirement from the Congress to the Defense Department to do a pharmaceutical supply chain risk assessment that I said, you know, I'm in a command position. I'm one of the most senior, if not the senior operational medical logistician who happen to also have a background in drug development, specifically with vaccines and biologics. Hey, I, I really ought to, to really look deeper into this. 
And it was really that, uh, that mandate from the Congress that had me go into a series of meetings with the Joint Staff Surgeon, Combatant Command Surgeons all over the world, as well as brief very senior leaders all the way up to the Assistant Secretary of Defense of Health Affairs, that we really needed to look at the quality of the medicines that we were buying in the health, in the military health system, not only for patient care, but also as a national security issue uh, for national defense. Vic, I'd like to dig a little deeper into the issue of foreign manufacturing, because I think Americans believe the Food and Drug Administration is testing everything, making sure that if there's a plant in China or India or Thailand that... Um, that is being inspected on a regular basis and everything is just about perfect. As someone who's been involved for decades in supply chain management and quality, what's the reality? Well, the reality is that there's severe differences and limitations on regulatory oversight of, let's say, the generic small molecule drug manufacturing industry from what we see the domestic front here in the United States or allies in, in Europe, from what we see over in Asia, especially notably India and China. As a matter of fact, if you look back at uh, an FDA report back in, in 2015, as a matter of fact, and you know the FDA had a global program or has had a global program for routine inspection of manufacturing facilities, but this report in 2015, I'll just quote it, said, FDA has no formal means for quality surveillance except through inspections, and inspection findings have not been a reliable predictor of the state of quality. That comes from the FDA. And whoa, that's kind of scary. Well, it's yeah. I mean, for the for the most people in the United States, um, yeah, that's that's news to them because they're just not maybe in the industry, they're not tracking this. They're used to, you know, hearing what their doctor or pharmacy says that, hey, all the drugs are the same. They all have the same license from the FDA. And what we've found as we've looked into this, and a lot of other people have looked into this, is that, especially with the pandemic, right, it further exacerbated the quality risks and the backlog of even this disparity in inspections of overseas facilities that manufacture these drugs. And you know you don't have to take my word for it. You I mean you can just look at the government government accountability office report that was published in in 2022 that basically said that over 80 percent of high risk overseas manufacturing facilities hadn't even been ex inspected or were not inspected in over five years, according to the GAO. And and that's a big problem because when you look at other GAO reports, they've been tracking this since 2009 with the FDA's challenge on overseeing and regulating overseas manufacturers, they've actually assessed that FDA's inability to regulate um, the overseas manufacturers as high risk since 2009, a year after the heparin scandal that occurred in 2008. Remind us again, please, of the heparin scandal. I, I think some of our listeners have heard about it, but some may not have. Yeah, just a, a, a brief overview is that you know heparin, uh, a commonly used blood thinner, uh, it's also used in a lot of dialysis patients as well when they're getting dialysis, but it's a very commonly used medicine where the active ingredient actually comes from pig intestines. Well, the main active ingredient was sourced from a pig farm in China, and it unfortunately got adulterated with some bad 
you know, stuff in that that heparin and it got distributed through a US distributor manufacturer in the United States for thousands and thousands of patients. And unfortunately, it wasn't discovered until uh, a very relatively healthy physician uh, succumbed to, you know, really a bad, severe outcome of taking this heparin. And it wasn't until his spouse, who was also a physician, raised a lot more concerns about this. You know, how is it possible this perfectly healthy 40-something-year-old physician going in for a routine procedure would all of a sudden have all, you know, multi-organ failure. And it wasn't until that plus some other hospitals, I believe it was a children's hospital, noticed that children were having some complications from taking, you know, heparin. They found out that it was one common source. That eventually got recalled, but it was a real alarming um, point in our U.S. history where we didn't really have a very robust or very capable FDA regulatory inspection scheme or presence over in China or India uh, during this time. And it wasn't until that following year and this really this heparin scandal that um, the FDA had to put a presence over there. Well, let's fast forward a couple decades, Vic, if we may. Uh, you've looked at some drug issues. I think you've um, been concerned about a drug called tacrolimus, which is a really critical drug. And we just recently heard from an endocrinologist that hydrocortisone, which has been around for decades, may be problematic. That is to say, uh, some generic manufacturers may not be up to snuff on it. And for people who have what we call Addison's disease or uh, adrenal insufficiency, not having an adequate hydrocortisone generic formulation can be life-threatening. So this isn't a problem that went away, is it? No, it certainly hasn't gone away. As a matter of fact, it's probably gotten worse. And what we found was it's gotten so bad that we're now seeing all-time high drug shortages for critical drugs. You know, these are drugs for pa patients that have diseases that are debilitating or life-threatening like cancer patients. And really, that's been going on for several years now with these major drug shortages has really gotten to the attention of more and more policymakers, healthcare systems, professionals within the health system, and then patients that are suffering from not getting the continuity and the quality care that they need. So what we've seen lately is more of a call for quality as a, another criteria, a major criteria that really, quite frankly, has been missing out of the equation in this commodity, this, this precious commodity, which is pharmaceuticals. And what I find to be very interesting uh, and quite alarming is that our pharmaceutical industry, especially for the generic pharmaceutical industry, doesn't work like other free market economies where there's a lot more transparency in the quality attributes of the product that one is buying or consuming. The markets are actually um, are really designed to where you know it's based on normal supply and demand principles where continuous improvement in quality is actually built into the product, especially when you look at small electronics or you look at automobiles or you look at anything that you buy that is evaluated by third parties or independent evaluation, uh, those products tend to actually get to a place where they become better and more effective as far as value for the price that you pay. So it's a combination of having the highest quality for the best price and you know having a market do that instead of having some artificial factors thrown in could get to the point where 
we almost favor um, overseas manufacturers that actually play by a different set of rules because the regulatory agency can't regulate them to the same degree. And they have really an incentive to exercise their biggest advantage, which is access to cheap labor and really don't have any incentive to invest into modern advanced manufacturing capabilities and technologies. Well, exactly. So what you're describing is a situation in which we value price. Low price is the criterion on which a lot of pharmacy chain buyers are going to make their decisions. Get the cheapest drug, right? And it seems like quality doesn't play any role in it. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 primarily one of the main drivers in this problem is that price is the big driver. And the problem is, is that price should be in a, it should be a criteria. The problem is, is when you have a marketplace that drives something as important as a chemical that you put into your body to the point where you're spending maybe three cents a tablet, then the marketplace can't build in quality. So a lot of the investigation and the research we've done on this in the Defense Department working with other collaborators have found sometimes prices of drugs are priced too low. And what we've done is we've created more of a risk than a benefit. And so if that pill was instead of three cents a tablet was maybe four or five cents a tablet, as crazy as that sounds, we may not have some of the quality issues because we could actually apportion, or at least these manufacturers can apportion some more of that budget to quality and consistency and reliability in a product. You're listening to Victor Suarez, Senior Advisor and National Representative for Securing America's Medicines and Supply. SAMS SAMS is a multi-industry coalition trying to strengthen the security of the medical supply chain in the U.S. Victor Suarez served more than 27 years in the U.S. Army in operational and logistical roles including two combat tours in the Middle East. After the break, we'll find out why the FDA's efforts to ensure drug quality have not been more effective. In the U.S., FDA inspections are unannounced. Elsewhere, they often must be arranged months in advance. What are the national security implications? If the FDA can't test drugs, shouldn't there be independent testing of all drugs that come from abroad? How might we improve the supply chain with a focus on appropriate monitoring? People want to trust that their drugs meet quality standards. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is brought to you in part by Urea Skin Relief from The People's Pharmacy. After years of work, we've gotten the formula just right. We're delighted to be offering this intensive skin therapy with 20% urea. Urea Skin Relief Cream is not your average moisturizer. Formulated with a unique blend of urea and plant-based ingredients, it's specifically designed to deeply hydrate and soothe even the most stubborn dry skin. Whether you're battling the effects of harsh weather or you have sensitive skin that's prone to irritation, this cream works wonders. Urea is a powerhouse ingredient. Not only does it act as a humectant, drawing moisture into the skin, it also beefs up the skin's barrier function. We're just as proud of what you won't find in our Urea Skin Relief Cream, no parabens or phthalates. 
creating a cream for dry skin free of these common endocrine-disrupting preservatives and plasticizers was what motivated us to make this product. We're offering a limited-time discount for People's Pharmacy podcast listeners. You can get 20% off either the handy 2-ounce size or the hefty 6-ounce size of the People's Pharmacy Urea Skin Relief. You'll find them both in the body care section of the store at peoplespharmacy.com. Make sure you put the code PP20 into the discount code box when you check out. That's capital P, capital P, PP20 for 20% off your urea skin relief purchase through May 31, 2024 at peoplespharmacy.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Cardio Health is offered in both convenient capsule and powder formats, with each serving containing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols to support heart health. More information at cocovia.com. Today, we're discussing how the FDA monitors the quality of the drugs we take. The vast majority of those are generics, and most of those are made outside the country, where labor costs are considerably cheaper. If competing medicines are exactly the same, the only distinction among them would be price. That could tempt some manufacturers to cut corners. How would we know if the resulting product failed to meet quality standards? We are talking with Victor Suarez, who retired from the U.S. Army at the rank of colonel. His experience there included worldwide operational, healthcare supply chain, acquisition, and product development roles, including two combat tours in the Middle East as a medical company and battalion commander. He's now a senior advisor and national representative for Securing America's Medicines and Supplies, SAMS, SAMS. Vic, the Food and Drug Administration is supposed to make sure that the medications we take are safe and effective. And presumably, they're supposed to have some tools to ensure that. Why haven't they been more effective with their inspection program or some other way of ensuring quality? Yeah, I think part of this um, has to go back to the evolution of what we've seen probably in the last 60 or 70 years. And if you track the history of the FDA and you see where around the 1960s is when they, they really made a big shift. Because prior to the 1960s, most of the manufacturers of drugs were big name manufacturers, the ones that you've heard of, right? The Mercs, the Byers, the, the Bears, I mean, and the big companies that have always tried to invest in quality and making a high-level product. And the FDA was testing on a routine basis several thousands of these, these molecules every year. And what they found was that they, they weren't finding too many problems. And so they decided to shift in the early 60s to something what we call today current good manufacturing practice, or GMP. And this shift really was noble, and it, and it was probably a good idea at the time, but really GMP relies on an ethical company 
doing the right thing every single time in the manufacturing process to include when they find something out of specification, they will do a root cause analysis, a CAPA, corrective action, preventive action, and actually find the root cause of the problem, fix it, and really divulge all that um, information to continuously improve. But what we saw going into the 80s with the passing of another law in 1984, where there was an accelerated uh, means to get generic pharmaceuticals into the marketplace much more efficiently and faster was the Hatch-Waxman Law or Act of 1984. Well, we started to see, plus including the fact that we started to see more and more globalization, right? More of a push to move manufacturing from all commodities overseas to cheaper sources of manufacturing and supply. What we saw over the next decade from the mid-80s on was that the FDA relied on with the, these trusted companies to make a product and to really self-regulate themselves for the quality uh, to a point where those companies then converted to not so um, you know, well-intended ethical companies that were overseas. And as a result, some of those companies took advantage, quite frankly, of GMP and their ability to kind of self-regulate and self-report when they made problems. And so what we have right now is a failure to evolve and to realize what has gone on in the last several years. There's been other drivers that's contributed to this as well. But the important thing, I think, for a regulatory agency is to recognize that and to adjust resources based on where the critical risks and threats are. And I think that's the area that I find to be kind of troubling is that they've really struggled in that area. And as a result, U.S., generic and Western European manufacturers have suffered. They've been at the, the bottom end of you know not being able to compete with uh, foreign manufacturers in India and China because they just get to play by a different set of rules. Now, Vic, as a military person for decades and as someone who is involved in supply chain and acquisition, the idea of trust but verify is probably pretty much a rule of thumb in that business. It seems like a lot of the pharmaceutical industry issues that we've seen with generic drugs has been trust but not necessarily verify. The idea of an unannounced visit at a drug company in the U.S. is critical, but abroad not so much. Yeah, that's a major national security issue as well. I mean, if we cannot, if if both the the overseas company, especially in India and China, where it's a much more difficult to do an unannounced inspection, cannot be done to the same degree as what the agency can do in a United States company or a European company, we have a huge inequity and we have a, a means for which it can easily incentivize an organization to cheat and to falsify information and to really not do everyday good manufacturing in high quality, well-controlled manufacturing plants. And so if they have three weeks to three months advance notice that a regulator is going to inspect their plant, they can certainly do all those things to kind of clean up the books and to make it look like they're doing good quality manufacturing. And I think the biggest really, you know, misunderstanding here that I'd like to see the agency come around to is re recognizing that, look, 
Um, there was a point in time where these companies filed their ANDAs or abbreviated new drug applications to get licensed for their medicines. And typically when a company goes through that process, whether it's for a small molecule drug or a, a biologic like a vaccine, that's the best you're going to see a company typically you know, have all their paperwork and their processes and their chemistry manufacturing controls to their best. The problem is, is when we start to assume that once they actually go to commercial market, that they're going to sustain that without periodic checks, whether it's on-site inspections or actually checking the product quality itself. And I think that's the biggest really miss, you know, missed opportunity for the agency to really embrace is that we're talking about a marketplace that has evolved into a major problem globally where we have potentially contaminated drugs that are getting into the supply chain all over the world. And some of them creep into United States healthcare institutions and pharmacies. And we don't have a really robust process to independently evaluate the quality of these medicines. Vic, you've mentioned a couple of times that this problem that we see with poor quality or indecipherable quality, probably more accurately, of uh, medications manufactured abroad is a national security issue. And I'm hoping that you can just very briefly get explicit about how that affects our national security. Right. I'll, I'll be very specific on this one. All right. So the last year, we the Department of Defense was mandated by Congress in a National Defense Authorization Act of FY23 to conduct a pharmaceutical supply chain risk assessment. Some of the readouts on that report, that risk assessment, that went back to both the Senate and the House as late recently as late November of 2023, determined that approximately 54% of the national drug codes, and this is about 7,000 NDCs, were we're coming from that we were buying that we have access to in the military health system was coming from either high risk that is non trade agreement act compliant manufacturers uh, excluding China and then very high risk this is specifically China or just unknown we don't know where they're coming from so they could be coming from China or other unknown countries and what we found is is that approximately fifty four percent of what we are basically buying or have access to, to not only take care of our service members, their families in normal everyday military healthcare facilities, but this is the same supply chain that we would actually buy if we had to mobilize for war. 54% of them were relying on the very, or 27 of them for sure were relying on China. So this would be akin to, if I presented this issue to, let's say a combat arms officer, a general officer, and I said, well, let's look at the bullets. Imagine if you had a bullet and there's four components of a bullet and that's the shell casing, the projectile, the, the gunpowder, and the charge. And I told you that the gunpowder, that a super majority of that actually comes from your biggest adversary and we're talking a national defense standpoint with bullets. Would that make sense? And I would say it's the same thing when it comes to pharmaceuticals is that we are now subject to an embargo from our biggest adversary in times of crisis. We saw a little bit of this during the pandemic. But if there was major tensions that actually transitioned to hostilities, 
in the Ch South China Sea or over Taiwan policy, if we had an embargo of critical API, active pharmaceutical ingredient, or just certain key starting materials, we could be really having a major problem, not only in buildup of our forces, but also just U.S. healthcare system. Boy, thank you so much for explaining that so clearly. Vic, I have a question about solutions. What about testing? I mean, you know, that idea of trust but verify, why isn't that a good idea? Why don't we have independent objective testing of all pharmaceuticals that come into this country from abroad? Well, part of it is it's really not been supported by the regulatory agency. And here's a, an example of kind of like a, a straw man argument that they'll often say. And, and let me get this straight for your, your listeners. I want the FDA to be very successful, but I also want them to recognize how the world is and, and, do, and, and evolve and adapt to what needs to be done to protect patients and patient care with the drugs. And I know that they are primarily working on this. They're just taking in a different approach. And the realities are that if you don't actually test the quality of the product, you don't really fully embrace the total quality system. And that quality system comprises of quality assurance and quality control. So quality insurance is really where they focus on, which is kind of all the inputs. And it's really not direct. It's mostly measuring the quality of manufacturing maturity, as they call it, which is actually assessing the plant. And what I would argue, and I think a lot of other people that I've collaborated with would argue is you don't really have a full quality system unless you actually test the product itself. Mm -hmm. So this would be akin to if you're going to buy a Ford F-150 truck and the National Highway and Traffic and Safety Administration would just evaluate the manufacturing plant of that Ford pickup truck plant and make sure they're following all the SOPs and they're doing all the right actions to make sure that manufacturing floor is running efficiently under good manufacturing processes. But nobody would ever evaluate the actual truck itself. Is it safe? Does it blow up if it gets into a front head head-on collision? Does it roll over easily? Does it meet certain standards? So no test drives. And and so I would say the same thing with pharmaceuticals is that you don't really truly have a quality system unless you test the quality of the product. And I think that's important for our consumers, especially in light of the fact that it's very difficult for them to regulate overseas manufacturers. Vic, we have just a couple minutes left, and I'd like your comments very briefly, if you don't mind, about the intermediaries between the manufacturing of pharmaceuticals and the actual selling of manufacturers at the pharmacy level, these uh, PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers, and then solutions based on your vast experience with supply chain monitoring and quality control. So look, I, I will tell you, I'm not a, a subject matter deep expert in the GPOs and PBMs, but I think they, they lie at kind of the driver of why we're in an economic system with quality problems that's driving shortages. What's a GPO? A group purchasing organization. So think of like a, an organization that would keep a membership organization of multiple hospitals that would bind together several hospitals purchasing power to negotiate, I guess, good prices for products. And GPOs can buy anything from medical supplies 
that are not pharmaceuticals to pharmaceuticals for hospital organizations. Those hospitals end up originally, you know, saving some costs on it. But what they found was there was a, a means to, to make money off of this through a series of kickbacks that are normally outlawed in any other business transaction. So in the late 80s, there was a, a safe harbor granted for the anti-kickback laws that other industries aren't even allowed to do. And that was granted to the GPOs and then later in 2003 to the PBMs. And the PBMs are basically the pharmacy benefit managers that are between basically you as the patient and your health insurer. And it's really driving the economics of the drug supply industry to not work like any other industry where there's lack of transparency in the industry and, and all these other things that cause shortages and, and then eventually quality issues because these manufacturers don't have an incentive to invest in quality. Vic, after all your experience in supply chain and quality issues, I wonder if you have any suggestions on how we could improve the supply chain monitoring and quality of our pharmaceutical supplies here in the United States. Sure. I think the immediate thing is for healthcare organizations, physicians, pharmacists, and patients to be more informed about what's going on with the industry. And then to then really demand from a health industry standpoint, hospitals, big purchasing organizations, reimbursement organizations, to really demand that independent quality testing ought to be done so that we have a better idea of where quality lies on the spectrum of alternatives for medicines. Once we have that, then we'll be able to make good choices and then create a system where quality manufacturers are actually rewarded for providing quality medicines. And even those manufacturers that don't meet the standard, at least they get feedback on where they're not meeting the standards. And then they have an opportunity to either reformulate to get a different supplier of some type of a key starting material or API that might not be up to snuff, and to be able to come back being a higher quality product. It's not about creating winners and losers. It's about overall incentivizing the system to put quality as a key criteria in the purchasing and the dispensing of these medicines. Victor Suarez, thank you very much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. My pleasure. You've been listening to Victor Suarez, who retired from the U.S. Army as a colonel after more than 27 years of service, including two combat tours in the Middle East. His responsibilities included operations, healthcare supply chain, product development and acquisition, and command of a medical company and battalion. He's now a senior advisor and national representative for Securing America's Medicines and Supplies, a group with the mission of strengthening the security of our medical supply chain. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wodarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements, cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. Today's show is number 1,376. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments about today's interview. You can also reach us through email, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. 
At peoplespharmacy.com, you could sign up for our free online newsletter, get the latest news about important health stories, and have regular access to information about our weekly podcast. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.